0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud.
1: This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide.
2: Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent.
0: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened.
1: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
0: And welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly from the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And joining us soon at this party is Shane Wright. Shane is the senior economics correspondent for the nine newspapers. We got the first results from the census this week, PK. Shane's a bit of a census nut, so we'll get his analysis of the data, what it says about our society, our economy, perhaps even our political future. But first, let's you and I start overseas because our Prime Minister has been on an international jaunt since we last met, a guest at the NATO Summit in Madrid.
0: He certainly has. The Prime Minister has been busy shaking the hands of numerous world leaders because you can get quite a bit of access to a lot of them when you go to a big summit like that. And sending out the message that Australia is now under new management Um, And under not only new management, but also under new uh, policy direction, particularly with climate change, which he argues, and I think there is some evidence for it changing the dynamic significantly on his trip. One initiative he has been trying to kickstart is a free trade deal with the EU, which he claims stalled under the Morrison government. Here's some of what the Prime Minister had to say.
1: There was one discussion only. Uh, in the last 12 months, which is not the way that these deals progress uh, to completion. And it was clear that there were two impediments there. One uh, was the Australian relationship with France and the breakdown uh, that had occurred in recent times, given France's leadership role in Europe. And the second was Australia's position on climate change, where the perception uh, by Europe and indeed by the world Uh, that Australia was a handbrake on global action on climate change was clearly hindering our capacity to enter into economic relationships uh, with our European friends.
0: So the Prime Minister mentioned previous climate change in action and our strained relationship with France also there. Now, Fran, I think he's actually... Right. Obviously, this is a a good story for him to tell, too, that he's, you know, the new prime minister that has a new suite of policies and therefore can reset the relationships. But I spoke to the EU ambassador to Australia and he said, yes, climate change is actually – Australia's change on that issue and its more ambitious targets is actually quite key in Europe and that it has been a game changer. What do you think Anthony Albanese has been trying to get out of this trip, though, more broadly? Because it's not just climate change he's been talking about. There's lots of issues. That's
2: right. Basically, he's trying to get as much as he can on a number of fronts, domestic and international. Um, First off, sending the message that Australia under his government is a fully signed-up member of the international community, and under this negative globalism that Scott Morrison spoke about, admittedly back in 2019 in the in the Trump era, but you know that was a, a major speech from the Prime Minister, and people remember these things. So the Albanese government is, you know, boots and all, an enthusiast for multilateral engagement, and our entree card to that is the clear climate change commitment. Basically, if you think about it, though, PK, he's getting a fair bit of cred. If you listen to the, you know, what the U ambassador was saying, a fair bit of cred from doing not much extra on climate change, signing up to the 2030 target, which you know many of our overseas um, friends and allies think is, is not ambitious enough, but nevertheless signing up to a more ambitious target and meaning it. So a meaningful, full-throated commitment to climate action and cooperation that has funds attached and without weasel words seems to be getting him a fair way in Europe with our friends in the US and the UK and with our Pacific neighbours too. So Scott Morrison is gone. Anthony Albanese is back talking climate change without caveats. And also, as you mentioned, repairing that relationship with Emmanuel Macron that broke down so spectacularly over the cancellation of the uh, subs contract. Um, With that comes this renewed dialogue around the free trade deal with Europe. So all of that plays well globally, but it plays well domestically too, because the new Prime Minister was, to be frank, I think, seen as a little light on in terms of what people knew of him in his policy sense and, and his sense of authority. The global stage gives a leader like Anthony Albanese the gravitas and the authority that people weren't necessarily crediting him with. So early on, he gets that lift. And also, he's seen back home, not just to be sort of, you know, prancing around the world stage, but delivering to in the Pacific and now with this refreshed EU trade, free trade negotiations. So I think it's been, you know, a, a win-win early on for Anthony Albanese in this first flash of the new government.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And that one-on-one meeting with Macron, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, it's poised to happen. It'll be pretty interesting for that relationship. Um, I think it was uh, a previous Prime Minister, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who said, you know, his big advantage is also that he's not Scott Morrison, (laughs) which was a little bit cheeky of Malcolm Turnbull. Also, the audience for those comments is key, the French media, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, ended up coming in on and saying it in Australia too, but you know, the French media, like making Manger. sure, he, yeah. Uh, so not kind to the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, but of course that, that not a, that agreement, the, the, you know, the subs deal being sunk was one thing, but then the comms around it and leaking text messages, all of that was played out very badly for And him. all
2: that stuff feeding into the narrative, the pre-election narrative of Scott Morrison being a liar, which was you know, Labor's big line, you've got Macron, you've got Malcolm Turnbull and then a suite of others feeding into that. It was really, really, a, you know... <laughs> it was a perfect storm. It, it was a perfect storm. I was going to use another word instead of storm, but yes, perfect
0: storm will do. <laughs> yeah, let, let's keep it Let's keep it clean on the podcast. Look, the other thing is, just in terms of these meetings, obviously NATO's troop build-up is key and uh, some of the language that's being used in Europe but by our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and a muscling up on China is also Mm. a very key part of this this too, the condemnation that China has been essentially too cosy with Russia and not condemned Russia and that in our own region, China is the rising threat. I think, Fran, that has been a significant part of um, these meetings too. And on on on
2: that front, Pika, I think it's interesting that NATO has now bought into, you know, formal position is China as a security threat. Um, But we see Anthony Albanese stepping up and again, Australia leading the rhetoric against China, which Scott Morrison did. And got a lot of um, credit for, I think, in in the halls of, of Washington, for instance, and other places, that Australia was seen to muscle up to China in that sense. Um, Anthony Albanese makes sure he's seen to not be taking a backward step on that. So he came out very strongly in the last 24 hours, you know, warning China it needed to take a stand against Russia on Ukraine. And then if it didn't do that, it would be seen as essentially in cahoots with Russia.
0: Mm. Now, of course, while all of this is playing out and it is quite important overseas something that can't be settled and isn't overseas and in fact can't be settled till the prime minister comes back is this ongoing stoush with independents who are not happy about their funding allocation of parliamentary advisers lots of discussion about the numbers but essentially they're getting one extra parliamentary staffer as opposed to the four they had under the Morrison arrangement and uh, it seems to me there was a little bit maybe of an opening this week from one very key front bencher in the Albanese government, but since a bit of a doubling down, perhaps that they won't shift on this. How's it playing out, Fran?
2: I agree. When you interviewed the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, it seemed to be a bit of shift, a bit of wriggle room there, suggesting that maybe the government might get a bit of ground. Let's hear Katie Gallagher this week at the start of the week.
0: We are having ongoing and constructive um, engagement with them and we'll continue that and I'm sure when the Prime Minister returns from Europe he will continue that as well. So um, that, that's the first thing that we would want to continue that and ensure that you know legislation does pass through. Mm. So Katie Gallagher there on
2: RM Breakfast, acknowledging essentially the threats of the crossbench, which is some suggesting they might not pass legislation or might go on a legislation go slow until they get their staff compliment back. So she did sound like there was room for negotiation. But then others you spoke to and others who have spoken through the week on, you know, on a number of platforms, uh, not really giving much comfort at all to the crossbench.
0: No, and there have been a few. So the acting prime minister, Richard Miles, um, digging in. Tony Burke, manager of government business now, and obviously senior front bencher, uh, minister for employment, also making um, an interesting point actually on RM Breakfast this morning, saying what he worries about is this perception that government backbenchers or opposition backbenchers don't have a key role in determining policy, talked about their work on committees. And then he said, which I hadn't heard this argument before, so I'm sure he workshopped it and thought about it quite a lot because Mm -hmm. it was a compelling argument. He said, you know, when you talk about influence and this idea that they're a rubber stamp, he said, I've been in caucus meetings where backbenchers, because they've done research, and they have their own staff, and it should be there should be you know clear a clearer level field, a playing field that's equal, have come in and had influence on overturning or changing positions because they have done that work, and the idea that they're just rubber stamping isn't the way the system works, and that I think is a good point. All parliamentarians, in my view, and I think maybe should have, as a concept, I believe equal resources to represent their electorates, right? Uh, The government's argument has been that there was too much largesse under Scott Morrison. Let's not forget that Scott Morrison in 2019 won the barest of majorities to become a majority government, to be fair, a win's a win. But um, one of the ways he kind of tried to obviously sweeten the blow is to ensure that if there was trouble that, that the crossbenchers were well staffed. So that was what he did. Now, Labor wants to bring that back. They still have extra resources it's only one, but but the, that is extra. Uh, but given the language they started off with at the beginning of the government over a month ago, you know, friendly, friendly, friendly to the independents and isn't, isn't life-changing, this is a new era, new parliament, there was a view that maybe they'd be a bit nicer, but I reckon they're digging in on this. I don't know if there is heaps of room for negotiation from them, Fran. How do you see it?
2: No, I don't think there's heaps of room. I mean, I understand that the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, feels very strongly... About this, he thinks it's an equity issue, and he thinks it's you know parliamentary procedure issue. Basically, he thinks it's it's outrageous um, that a shadow minister would have fewer staff than a crossbencher. I agree. I don't think that is appropriate. That the shadow treasurer, for instance, would have fewer parliamentary staff, but. I also think that Labour's argument that it's creating a level playing field because all MPs, all backbench MPs from the major parties and the crossbench basically deserve the same level of staff because they all do work is ridiculous too. It's not a level playing field. No one, I don't think, is suggesting that there's a whole lot of backbench MPs in the major parties who are just passengers. Of course, they're there because they, you know, feel absolutely passionate about change and making change and working within their parties. But they are that's the problem. They are working within a party structure that has supports, the kind of supports, access to ministerial advisers, even perhaps access to departmental advisers for a government MP that the crossbench doesn't have. And they have different responsibilities too. I mean, they are not voting separately and independently on every piece of legislation before the parliament, because ultimately... They might be feeding into and will be feeding into their party's position, but when it comes to the vote on every piece of legislation, Labor MPs will vote the party line because if they don't, they'll be tossed out. That's how it works in the Labor Party. So there is, I think more pressure and more demands on the crossbench. Is four extra staff justified? No, it's not. It's too many. And that was obviously a sweetheart deal done with um, Scott Morrison. These things are built up over time and no one's noticed much. But back in the, the Gillard government days when um, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor and others were actually in a balance of power position, they had a lot of responsibility, a lot of workload. They had two and then ultimately, I think, two and a half staff extra I think that's probably about right. The point is, why has Labor bought this argument? Why has a new government bought this argument when, as you say, we thought it was all going to be sweetness and light and Anthony Albanese is into doing politics differently? Well, as I said, I think it's, uh, I understand he feels very strongly about this issue and he wants to see it rebalanced. How will it rebalance? I think we will see particularly in the Senate, if you think of someone with the workload of Jackie Lambie, for instance, in the Senate. Now, she has used her, um, she has gathered good advisors around her. We've all watched her develop in a policy analysis sense. She's um, been right across a policy brief. She's been a key vote on a number of very important issues. She needs the support to do that because ultimately it leads to better outcomes and a stronger economy. I don't think one extra staff position is enough for that. David Pocock, the new balance of power senator, doesn't think so either. I suspect we will see um, some recalibrating in the Senate in particular. There is an argument for that. And I also think we'll see Anthony Albanese perhaps sit down with a crossbench and try and take some of the heat out of this. I don't think he's going to give a lot of ground, but I think some ground could and should be given. Some ground will. Hey, let's bring our guest in, Fran.
0: Let's do it. (laughs) Shane Wright, Senior Economics Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome back to the party room.
1: Oh, uh, lovely to be here with you, marvellous Cavallus, and fantastic Fran.
2: Oh, I was wondering how you're going to match marvellous Kavalis. Uh, he fan- thought about it. <laughs> fantastic That's good. Fran, I'm loving that. Well, sensational Shane. Um, we've been talking about, um, Pika and I have been talking at length actually, about the Prime Minister's stoush with the minor parties and in independence over their funding for political staffing for political advisers. Shane, why do you think the Albanese government, let's face it, the Prime Minister, has bought this fight?
1: Well, two things. One is the budget. And we can't get away from the fact that Scott Morrison was using the budget to try and keep on side with the, uh, the independents pre-election. We've come post, we've gone past the election and the budget has got absolutely astronomical problems. So you can see, like, the teal independents are saying this is all about us but there are staffers inside the new government and in the opposition who are taking pay cuts as well and so this is the argument that right it's not all about the teals although the teals think it's all about them it's not all about them there is that aspect to it the other is a sign to the teals you are independents. harden up a a bit little guys you are Mm. not the alternative government you are the representative of say you're the representative of Kuyong, you're the representative of uh of Curtin, mm. you are not a government in exile, and that's a sign as well. And so, you basically, get to this point, their first
2: political lesson
1: a very big political lesson. And you get to this point the argument about the number of extra like these are advisors on top of their normal staff, mm. and you go, Right, does an independent Member need four. This it, it's a fair question to pose, and just because Zali Steggall had four, but that was a a big step up, and it was to try and keep her on side for key policy mm. reasons, as opposed to where we were pre. We, well, we go back to when Julia Gillard was in office and had uh, a couple of independents holding her her government in office. They didn't have four. No, they had two, has, two and a half ultimately. Yeah. Has the parliament changed, has governing changed that much in 10 years that you need double the amount of advisors? And it's also, it's, it's, I find it interesting because yes, the Teals are complaining about this, but they're complaining about an issue that if you went out into the general public, would they be saying, oh, let's have more professional political staff. And I don't think you're going to win that argument, no matter which part of the country you're in.
2: But the ultimate question is: Should this be an issue that is politicised? I mean, we are seeing a changing shape of the of the parliament. So the the major parties don't have as many seats now. Um, you know, should this be an issue that's taken out of the hand as the government of the day? So it can't be there as a reward or a punishment. Should we make a switch like that now?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because you do have the the numbers around parties. And and they they have been in place for some time, but I think you you bring up a good point there, fantastic Fran, that perhaps uh, even, I don't know for where the uh, JSM the the committee that will look at the election whether it's its role, but perhaps uh, Department of Parliamentary Services or even the Teals could commission a study out of the Parliamentary Library as to whether there is a role for removing this from the government of the day, because you're right, it it can be used to reward and punish. Mm. And we've seen that over the last 10 years.
0: Now, I want to get stuck into something very significant that happened this week and I think is always very exciting. Uh, the census results were unveiled and what a doozy. So many stories in the census results always. Australia looks very different from five years ago, Shane right? as you've been writing. There are as many millennials as baby boomers and Gen X has been uh, cut out we're, again. We're and being no one, squeezed. No one uh, cares about us. We're being squeezed, obviously. Whatever, yep. <laughs> there are more than one million single parent families. Nearly half uh, have a parent born overseas, putting my hand up there. So finally represent. It was 41% 30 years ago. What does it tell us about Australia as a nation and, and the way we're changing? And what are the implications politically? I feel like the last election, we saw this play out a bit.
1: Well, someone actually brought this up with me on census day now and it goes to the number of Indian born Australians in the country they are now the third largest grouping behind Australian born and English born and they've overtaken Kiwis and Chinese born since the last census it's been a huge influx the question posed to me was was Scott Morrison's focus on curry and Indian curry due to trying to curry favour no. with Indian voters i I don't know. I don't. I don't. Know. I, I'm not that. I think he cynical. likes curries as well, mm-hmm. he but yes, like curries, might yeah. have had a
0: double double purpose.
1: That's right. And like a third of all Indian born are in Melbourne, so it's interesting. Like I, I find that change, and it's not just the uh, Indian born. The Nepalese born, they've are uh, more than doubled. Like they're the fastest growing group. It's still relatively small, but the fastest growing group in the country in terms of people born from overseas. So that change in itself, and we we actually wrote about it this week, and uh, marvelous, you will understand. Like the the mm-hmm. great post-war uh, migration boom into Australia was driven by Southern Mediterraneans, and they, th- to be blunt, they're dying out. the the purport, the number of people, I think, in terms of uh, say Italian born, it's sixty eight percent of them. In this country are now over the age of 65 among greek born it's 73 percent now australia like the great boom of the uh, 50s 60s was built upon people from greece people from italy people from croatia Mm. now it's being built out of southeast asia or northern asia it like so those demographics feeding into the type like ostensibly people see it in our restaurants for instance but what we teach at school, how we teach at school, the types of resources these people need to be part of Australia. They, they are dramatic. They're changing very quickly. And the census is a great story in telling that aspect.
2: So what does it mean? I mean, there's lots of elements to the census. There's also the elements about that indicate we're a more secular society now. Fewer than half of Australians say they are Christian. Um, almost as many say they have no religious beliefs. So is that going to affect the way... You know, Family values, for instance, plays into election campaigns. What about that split? As you said at the start, um, both you and PK mentioned that there's as many millennials now as there are baby boomers. How is this going to affect political outcomes and the way our governments and oppositions campaign and shape their policies and campaigns, do you
0: think? Because mm, millennials, are, they're renting and they're cranky.
2: Well, they're renting and they're cranky and they're, and they're voting and a lot of them voted green, for instance. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've got this big crossbench. So you can just see that there. It's also going to have an economic impact, I imagine, more broadly, Shane, which is right up your your
1: alley. Yeah, you you can see that aspect. Uh, like, if you remember, remember the whole discussion about the grey army vote, yeah, that was going to change Australia, and
2: and it did impact John Howard's policies significantly.
1: Yeah, the boomers and the uh, like. The ABS calls them the interwar generation. I still think of them either as the silent or or great generation. Mm. They're that, mm. people born pre World War Two. They did. They've had a huge impact on policy over the last forty years. They really they've driven policy now, and you could see a little bit of it in the election. And you and Fran is absolutely right. That the that angry angriness in those inner city seats where there are a large number of renting millennials definitely paid into the election. And you could see the way say Scott Morrison was targeting those people on the outer suburbs who are slightly older and probably skew a bit more religious than those in the inner part of the cities. You could see that being part of like the whole Catherine Deves aspect of it. What was he playing to that demographic side uh, aspect of it? But, that was the demographics as we, as parties thought they were in 2016. Now we've got a, an updated picture and perhaps it's different to where the parties were playing to. So that means, like the census, everyone talks about how this is, develops, uh, you, like governments, particularly local councils and state governments, where they put schools, mm. where they put police, mm. all the rest. For political parties, this is the mother load of information that they can use to get a really good grasp on where... Voters are the types of voters they're trying to target, and so the census will be is going to be pulled apart by those by the major parties and independents as well.
0: It will, and on on a sort of related issue. Uh There's all the soul-searching going on inside the Liberal Party following their federal election loss, and as you say, you know, perhaps pouring over some of this data pretty soon too. The Conservative-aligned policy think tank, the Sydney Institute, ran a forum last week all about the election, and the New South Wales Liberal Senator, Holly Hughes, came up with several criticisms of the campaign. Here's one. My view, if modern Liberals wanted to be so independent, they should have run as one. And by claiming to be a modern Liberal, every other colleague, by inference was old-fashioned, outdated or a dinosaur. You have to have a point of difference and when you move away from being liberal to some form of liberal light, a light blue or whatever, you're really just a teal without the cult following. Ooh, kapow. (laughs) What did you make of that, Shane? I mean, this just speaks to the internal wars going on, right?
1: The internal wars. I got more taken up by uh, Holly Hughes's argument that all teachers are Marxist. Mm. And mm. that uh, they should be, and she this week it got to the point where she was arguing that more Adam Smith should be taught uh, in economic classes rather than uh, John Maynard Keynes. Yeah. Now, <laughs> has I she am, seen
2: the budgets lately?
1: <laughs> I'm get, I'm going to go out on a limb and say she hasn't read Smith because I have, and Smith believed in an agricultural uh, nirvana, mm. and who argued that any any time more than one or two, more than two business people were, businessmen in his, in his time were together, consumers were going to be ripped off. Uh, it is, uh, it, Smith took, uh, took a whole moralism to the economic world. Keynes built the modern, the way we understand the modern economy. Sadly for Senator Hughes, neither are taught in economic classes anymore. We don't teach economic history. But by the by, that's, I just got that off my chest because it yep, have been <laughs> sitting there for some time. Um, yeah, the argument about the modern and the modern liberal or liberal light, as she described, and older um, members of the party, actually, and this is for both major parties, it goes to the demographics of their parties. They are older. Like you can see, like the membership of the major parties has fallen and those who are staying with the parties are slightly older and they're slightly to the extreme of the left and right. They aren't as representative of the general public. And I think that was the interesting bit that uh, Senator Hughes didn't get to, that the parties themselves aren't as representative of modern Australia as they think they are. They've dramatically changed from where they were mass... When when the Labor Party and the Liberal Party and the National Party were mass movements back in the 60s and 70s.
2: And she sort of went to that, but there was denigration built into it, I thought. I mean, she said the coalition election losses in the inner cities were in part due to the focus on what she termed luxury issues, Eg, climate change and transgender rights, which she said people in those electorates have time to think about because quote these people are secure in their jobs and paying the mortgage is not a problem. Now you know liberals used to refer to you know the doctor's wives syndrome. Those those liberals who once voted Democrats because they were concerned about the environment, for instance. The wives um, are the doctors now. Yeah, exactly. But exactly, the wives or are the, the doctors. Or, or the, they're the, the teal West Australian care liberals for forests. Um,
1: that's another. there's was another grouping. The the Liberals for exactly. WA. But
2: w- w- whether that, that's true or not, I mean, should the Liberal Party be dismissing the Australians who care about these issues like that, or should they be trying to speak to them and win them back?
1: Well, that's the political calculation. Can you win without those seats? And I don't know if they've had that debate yet in inside the party whether right like and this came up very early uh, in the uh, post-election analysis. Oh, we'll have to we're going to focus on the outer suburbs, which is a the, the direct play out of uh, Republicans in the United States. Or there's a bit of Boris Johnson in that we have to pull from. We, we will get it. We will build our base from somewhere else. Which. If you'd read Menz- if everyone's read Menzies' uh, silent, uh, the Silent Generation uh, uh, speech, um, he was talking about everybody. He, wa- he was a ve- Menzies' view of the Liberal Party was very inclusive. Mm. This is going. This is there's a bit more exclusivity yeah. in regards to to this aspect of the party that they're talking about. You get back to this point. What is the? Where's the future electoral gains? For the, for the Liberal Party, is it like they just held on to, say, um, uh, Menzies and Aston and Deakin, which is outer suburban areas. There's been swings in, safe say, for a seat like Scullin on the north, northern parts of uh, Melbourne that I know quite well. Uh, but part of that is being driven by what's gone on with One Nation and UAP. And um, yeah, I, I, it's, no. I, I just wanted to bring this back to one point, which is where the teals are as well, which is, right, they've had a great election. Labor Party's had a great election. The Liberal Party's not, not a very poor election. And then everybody's already started thinking three years, this will be the same, we'll have the same sort of issues at play, the same demographics. That's not true. Like the, the argument from Monique Ryan saying, like we'll target Labor's uh, seats like Higgins, or, uh, or Josh Burns' seat, McNamara. Um, that's an expectation that the issues that the the Teals ran on, which included integrity and climate change, are they the same? Do they have the same intensity and resonance in three years' time? And yeah. I, there is no one in this in this country who could say, yes, that's exactly what's going to play out in three years' time.
2: Yeah, well, it's always a mistake to fight the last war, right? Yeah. Um, Shane, just before we go, the big news this week, I think, came out of America where the decision of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade has had massive implications for the rights of women seeking abortion. Here in Australia, it's led to a, a, a conversation about women's access to abortion here. It's legal in all states now, but as Labor frontbencher Tanya Plebisek told you this week,
0: PK, access is still an issue for many Australian women and girls. Labor took Medicare-funded abortion to the polls in 2019 when you were the deputy leader. Should you revisit that concept now in government?
1: Well, I think you need to have a, a holistic view of women's reproductive health and starts with better sex education. It starts with young people knowing that they can say no to sex. It goes on to much better advice and availability of contraceptives, including long-acting reversible contraceptives. We're unusual uh, as a country in the quite low rates of the use of that type of contraceptive. And, and of course, it involves access to safe, affordable legal abortion when necessary.
2: So a pretty full-blooded answer there from Tanya Plebisek, who used to be a health minister, federal health minister. She was also a minister for women for a long time. And as you noted, PK, um, she was the minister who brought the issue of Medicare funded abortion to the election campaign last time around, but not this time around. Why didn't they? Why didn't they keep continue with this? And do you think they will
0: move on it in government? I think well, we know why they believed that they were really very worried about where they got backlash in the last election and they worried, remember, about um, those seats, their own seats where they got a backlash uh, from religious communities. That's what, uh, that's what many people were briefing at the time. And so because they wanted to be a small target, and I think they were at this election, they put away things like that which they considered to be divisive. Now they're in government so things could change dramatically uh, because there's there's always a difference when you're in government and doing anything early on. I do think this is an important issue, um, you know, and, and and I think this is an issue for us. It's not it's not illegal to have abortions in Australia. Uh, there's different legislation in states and territories about when and how and and the kind of uh, the, the sort of way that the system works. But it's it can be very expensive to get an abortion, and so the out of pocket the, the fees are huge for some women, um, and therefore very difficult for women who are struggling or poor. And there is a lack of provision in regional remote areas that we also need to address if we believe it is a fundamental human right, which in Australia there is a political consensus it is. So mm-hmm. there is work to be done here. We are far away from where the US is. And I think, well, at least I've picked up around the country that there is great relief about that because there are there are women that are going to be put at great risk in the United States. But do you reckon, what do you make of it, um, Shane? Do you think there is going to be some, some movement, not necessarily immediately, but from health state Territory health ministers on this?
1: Yeah, I th- I think there may be just because you've got so many one you've got so many labor states at the moment, and two the the liberal states in that space, they're not out there marching against women's reproductive rights. Like, thank God we are not down the path mm, yeah. of the United States. And I think from anybody outside, like I was actually just recently back from the United States, and you get the feeling that this country is struggling. Like the Mm. And I come back to the whole fact: Australia has tied its its diplomatic, its economic future to the United States, and the empire is crumbling. And that was that's the gist I got after spending uh, more than a week in the states. And it it is SAG because it's a great nation.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a nation divided. I was speaking to a friend who lives there just um, yesterday, actually, and, and said, oh, you know, it's divided, it's hopeless. And and her response was, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I live in this state, which is one of the blue states, so we're okay. No sense that, um, y- you know, it's very fractured and not a great awareness of that, I think, even from those who, who live within it.
1: Yeah, we make fun of the parochialism of Queensland and West Australians, but it's nothing, comp- nothing compared to... Uh, where the United States looks at it, uh, and Americans look at themselves.
0: Yes, well, watch this space on progress on that, because I know lots of particularly uh, labour women are, uh, do worry about um, the way this situation works here in Australia too. Because you know it might be legal here, and and but access is a different issue. You know, you could have something that's legal, but is very hard to actually do without mm. great cost and um, disparity, which you'd hope um, is addressed. Shane, we're out of time and we've absolutely uh, we've bled you dry. We really we <laughs> have oh,
1: marvelous and fantastic look. It's you could never bleed me dry. I'll just keep on marching on.
0: <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Thanks Shane Terrific,
1: Cheers, Danny. Guys. see you. Questions without notice, the leader of the opposition. Thank you and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr. Speaker. Yeah. Yeah
2: and we're pleased too it's one of our favorite parts of the party room pk we've got a question this week from mary who says hi fran and pk it seems like policy is having a bit of a moment since the election during the interviews politicians are a tad less slippery commentators soberly discuss the finer points of economic theory and then there's new south wales and victoria's very collegial joint early education policy announcement heady stuff after all those three word slogans You two are professional political animals, so I ask you, what is going on? Is this a passing phase to do with current events and election cycles, or could we be witnessing a shift in the standards of political debate
0: in this country? What do you think? Mm. Well, I hope we are, uh, but I don't mean to be overly cynical. I'm not convinced we are. So I think that it is partly um, and perhaps substantially linked to the part of the political cycle we're in. Uh, there's a new government. They do have a mandate, um, uh, and as they do with the independence, too, on uncertain issues like climate change. When they talk, they are talking about implementing their new agendas, and so the questions are about policy because they 're introducing all these policies that they put took to the election and new directions I interviewed for instance Thursday morning, Tony Burke about the gig economy and uh, new legislation by the end of the year to regulate the gig economy now that's that 's new new direction of course, the interview's about to, going to be substantially about policy. But uh, also because of the time of the political cycle, this is before the government gets, you know, governments get themselves into trouble. They, they almost always do, <laughs> right? You want to get into the least amount of trouble and that's what they all set out to do if they're smart. But there is an inevitable trouble. And when that happens, that's when those interviews, when you talk about those interviews being really interesting at the moment, get a little more combative, It uh, get a little more, um, you know, Evasive. politicians. Yeah, like they, they dig in their heels. Even already, uh, my first Kind of interview that was a bit more contentious was with Katie Gallagher when I did press her on independence this week. It was quite divisive. People got cranky with me, but Labor is digging in and so I pushed her. You'll see more of that as the, as the months go on and there are more issues that perhaps they are digging in on. And I think that's an inevitability with a government settling in and more problems emerging. Having said that, full credit to the ministers I've interviewed. Overwhelmingly, they haven't been evasive and they've answered the questions. When they're not evasive, though, I don't care what political colour they're in, uh, they are, I will push them for answers. So far, I've got the answers.
2: Yeah, and I think you're right about the point in the political cycle. I mean, new ministers are champing at the bit to do something. That's what they've been working on. That's what they've been thinking about. And that's what they want to do. They don't want to actually arrive and do nothing. Also, if you ask any politician, I think, they will say the surest way to lose trust in the election Is to not implement the promises you've taken to the election. And so they will do that and try and do that within the first year or first hundred days or whatever it is the new Prime Minister has promised around issues like, you know, let's not forget. Anthony Albanese has looked at this election result and read the room. So he's going to move on climate, as we've seen, going straight to the UN, signing that 2030 pledge on integrity issues. They will work on, very quickly, a National Integrity Commission uh, around women's issues, for instance. So I think that's what the flurry of activity. It is great. Real politics will kick in. Governments are responsible for difficult things that they don't necessarily have the answer to or their supporters. You know, just simply will not allow them to move on. And that's when it gets, the business of governing gets difficult. And that's when you find ministers perhaps being a little more evasive, as we said. Uh, But right now, I think you're right. I think the whole country is enjoying this notion of talking about ideas again. It is true that the Morrison government in the last term had a very light political agenda. Scott Morrison won the election in 2019 without really talking policy much or promising much at all beyond tax cuts, and there wasn't a lot delivered or a lot of debate. There wasn't even a lot of real time in the parliament comparatively in the last term. So I, I think we're getting back a bit to politics as normal That starts off with policy, there comes the politics.
0: Mm, But, you know, if any Labor MPs or or frontbenchers or ministers are listening in the government right now, and I know some of them do listen to the podcast, they've told me and they've said it publicly, even when things get hard, answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just do it. Then we don't have to have those prickly moments. Uh, I like to avoid them. People think I like combat. You're the same, Fran. I don't love it. But if you're not getting an answer, that's when you get those moments. Um, Well, because it's not
2: about us, right? It's about the audience. The audience wants to know the answer and that's our job is to try and get it.
0: That's right. So, you know, we all, everyone loves to be friendly, but, you know, it has to actually match what's going on. Mm. All right, keep your questions coming in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom um, or you can email the questions to the party Room at abc.net.au. And remember to follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. And, of course, I'll just remind you, rate and review us. Uh, it's only when I remind you that you do it, I've noticed, <laughs> and then you write, like, these messages where you mock me for asking, but I don't care because it really does help our ratings and rate, helps people rate, know rate, about us. Rate, rate, rate and review rate, us. Rate. Um, give us five stars. If you give us fewer stars, I don't want to know about it. That's it for the party room in this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.